the word of our Lord from the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Colossians. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Father, we thank you for your holy word, your precious word, your good word. We pray that you would give us ears to hear what you would be saying to us this morning. We pray that you, your spirit would do his work in us and among us and through us as we um, give ourselves to you, Lord of the harvest, as those who are willing to be disruptive witnesses in a world like ours. We pray all this in the mighty and holy and matchless name of Jesus. Amen. So one of the many dangers of our postmodern secular age is that it creates bad soil. We are perpetually distracted. All of reality seems imminent, which means close, close by, and we experience a profound lack of transcendence, things that are beyond this world, otherworldliness, mystery, majesty. And yet, we long for meaning and purpose, but we try to fill it with vain things. Things like our appearance on social media, ever-changing hashtags, 15 minutes of fame expressed by 15 or so reactions to the hot take in our most recent status updates, tweets, or Instagram pics. Fleeting causes, they might even be good causes, like the suffering of the poor, homelessness, politics, wars, things such as that. They might even be meaningful in themselves, but they become to us fleeting causes that we'll care nothing about in three days. Or maybe we try to fill it with other forms of emptiness. Again, that vacuum of meaning and purpose, that vacuum of transcendence, when everything is distracting and close by and uh, imminent. And so we'll try to fill it with things like perpetual fun, physical pleasures with no divinely established parameters, just live how you want, do what you want, whatever feels good. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Unlimited food, uncontrolled drink, things like that, that we often think of as empty and vain. And so we behave like animals, all the while pretending to be gods, insisting that we're the center of our own universes. We demand that we define our own identities, that we give our own lives meaning. 
that we express our individualized selves to fulfill our self-identified, highly individualized, and often self-contradictory purposes. Truly, we're in a mess. And truly, we are a mess. But another pernicious feature of postmodern secularism is that while religion has been cast out of the public life of societal community and pushed ever inward into the privatized life of the lonely individual, even the capacity of true religion and the possibility of a supernatural world, something beyond the natural world, Those become almost impossible. And so we mockingly describe life in the real world. None of that fictitious faith business, but the real world. Again, as I mentioned last week, it, secularism is not, it's not about irreligion or religion being out of bounds. It's Religion is removed from society, it's no longer communal, and it's pushed to our inner, private, subjective, individualized lives. Religion becomes a private matter between you and your God. And so we find true belief to be so hard to come by. We've lost the wonder of the majestic. You see it all around you. People just kind of eking through life. No sense of wonder, no sense of transcendence, no sense of majesty. We've traded creation for nature. Empty, flat, measurable, discoverable, We've surrendered our sense of awe about the goodness and beauty of life for a diabolical cynicism toward the inevitabilities of living. You have to live in a world like ours? My condolences. It's tough. It's terrible. That's kind of how we talk about life nowadays everywhere. We've lost our sparkle. And if we happen to remember that it's lost, we don't know the first thing about where we might find it again. But this is not so for children. Even infants have sparkles in their eyes. They literally do. Just stop distracting yourself and gaze into their eyes for a moment and you'll see it. This wonder because everything is new. Everything is wonderful. Everything is majestic. <laughs> everything is magical. Everything is miraculous through the eyes of a child. This is one of the reasons Jesus plainly insists that without the eyes of faith that a child has, we will miss his kingdom. In the Gospel of Matthew... He, the, the scriptures tell us, and calling to himself a child, Jesus put him, so he, he takes a child, he puts 
this child in the midst of his disciples, right there in the middle of them, and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn, which is to repent, and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child, he says, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom demands humility. Not just because it's virtuous. Not, not only because of what humility is, but because of what humility does. Think about it. To humble yourself is to put yourself under another. It is to submit. Without humility, we simply cannot see what's above us because we're too busy looking down rather than up. And so unfortunately, regrettably, and tragically, we miss what's above us. We're too distracted by junk, by the things and toys we've made, that we miss the treasures he's made, the tokens of his triune love for us. But let's think for a moment about distractions. Please don't miss the great chasm of separation between self-imposed artificial distractions and natural distractions that are simply part and parcel of living in a wonderful and wondrous life in a wonderfully created world. We might be distracted by, say, children, a neighbor, the chirping of a big, beautiful cardinal, Yes, those things distract us. They grab our attention and pull it away from what otherwise held our attention in that moment. But that's quite different than being constantly and artificially distracted, say, by a dozen or so app notifications on a tiny black-mirrored screen that we keep in our pockets. These kinds of distractions are not the same. They're whole worlds apart, literally. One is good and the other, frankly, is evil. Not the phone itself, per se, but our refusal to take it captive. Remember, the Apostle Paul admonished us, take every thought captive. And that's an important activity to participate in, but what does it mean living in a constantly connected, constantly distracted, constantly technologized, if I don't even know if that's a word, age, to take all of that captive? The cascading disturbance of artificial distraction leads to the inability to appreciate the glory of the natural, God-given distractions of life. Again, a child, a neighbor, or a big, beautiful bird. And so you secretly groan when you see your neighbor approaching your door or your coworker approaching your desk. You wouldn't do it in front of them. You wouldn't want them to see it. You might even roll your eyes if you know nobody's looking. Or maybe another person is looking and you're amusing them. Oh, I've got to deal with this. I don't have time. 
Or worse, you snap at your chatty kids because your head is burning from staring at your phone all day. I know this personally, intimately, and experientially. But in our lives, living in a world such as ours, with all of the distractions of life and all the things vying for our attention, how is it that we can live an attentive sort of way? What are some be- disruptive behaviors that can help us lift our eyes from our self-imposed distractions and teach us to humbly appreciate the wonder of the world around us? filled with children and neighbors and animals and work, the whole created world itself, the opportunity and invitation to step into the needs of others. What are some of those disruptive behaviors? We've been teasing around some of them the last couple of weeks, but I do want to get pretty specific here this morning. You can think of these behaviors kind of as liturgies. You know what a liturgy does? It I mean, it literally, the word literally means the work of the people. And a liturgy is a form and a shape that guides us along. That's why we have, you know, some people might call it a bulletin. Others might call it a liturgy. What it's doing is it's giving us an order of worship. It's helping us move through the service together, be on the same page together, know when to respond to uh, the liturgist leading in a responsive reading, know what are the words that we're going to sing, what are the passages that we could be looking up. And the interesting thing about a liturgy is even when you're not using it as it's designed to be used, it still has a formative effect in our lives. Because number one, notice this thing kind of fits perfectly in your Bible or as a bookmark. You can take it along with you and look back over it and it pulls memories of that activity back to the forefront of your mind. But also just the way we kind of, we describe it as going through the motions and we look down on that. And of course, it's not good to just go through the motions, but sometimes it can be helpful when you ought to, but don't feel like it to just go through the motions. You know, there are things that we probably ought to be doing that we don't really want to do, but we force ourselves to do them because they're good for us. Like eat the broccoli that's on your plate or take the multivitamin that tastes all like weird and it maybe leaves a lump in your throat maybe drinking eight cups of water a day, something like that, that maybe you don't feel like it, but you know you shouldn't, so you do it anyhow. Those can be helpful. But think of, think of these different behaviors, these disruptive behaviors as liturgies, things that form the ebb and flow of our days and weeks, how we form and fill our time, habits, if you will, behaviors that serve as Frameworks of character formation. Goodness, I'm echoing like crazy. We're going to think about them in five categories. The first is this. The first is right where we are today. Congregational liturgies. You know what? I like using that word congregation. I use it interchangeably with church with a small c because, you know... A church is a congregation. But every once in a while I use that word congregation intentionally because it's it's kind of provocative. Think about what a congregation is. It is a gathering together, an assembly, so to speak. A fellowship together that is gathered. 
But congregational liturgies. What are some congregational liturgies, some things we do when we're together that have a disruptive witness in our lives, behaviors that we participate in that form us and fill us and shape us? Well, one is transcendent worship. Um, you may not think of our worship as transcendent, but there are a number, number of things that we do as a congregation. A lot of those are kind of preparatory that help us experience something that's just different from normal everyday life in our world. One is we don't, we don't use a lot of like high-tech technology and that sort of thing. We could, and we have before, have words up on the screen or images and that sort of stuff that are projected up. And of course, we've got you know, some artificial lighting and we've got microphones and stands and that sort of stuff to help us. But we do try to remove some of the distractions of imminence, you know, what's right here before us, what's grabbing our attention. We pull the lights down. We have candles. Candles are odd. They're virtually completely unnecessary now, right? You don't even need a candle to get around. You can grab your phone and turn on the on the flashlight, or if you don't want to do that because it's too bright and you'll startle people in the middle of the night, 3 a.m., you can just like wake up your screen a little bit and use it to navigate around, right? Candles are almost useless. Even the smell good candles are useless. You can get the little plug-ins. You can get the little things that you pull the little foil off and it creates smell in the bathroom, that sort of thing. Candles are almost completely unnecessary, but they do kind of evoke in us an idea of transcendence because it's fire, which is strange and otherworldly. It's interesting that it was a burning, a burning bush that Yahweh appeared to Moses through. Why don't you just talk from the bush? There's something about fire that just grabs you. You can sit around a campfire for eight hours. Just keep poking it and like, Get, get another log on here. You just sit around. There's something warming. There's something inviting. There's something kind of otherworldly. Um, we have scripted prayers. We have responsive readings. Things that, that we may not do in our normal everyday lives. We sing songs that you probably don't listen to on the radio. Maybe some of them are songs that you listen to on the radio or on your... On your uh, I was about to say iPod, good grief. Uh, you know, your iPhone, you listen to the MP3s or whatever. But, but there are things that happen when we gather together for worship that are different than our normal everyday lives. Lingering fellowship is another congregational liturgy. Sitting around the table, fellowshipping together, sharing a meal together. Um, we live in a world where so many things are just microwaved and done on the run. You know, we eat meals in our cars, alone by ourselves. We have this lingering fellowship where we visit with one another, where we share a meal together. Holistic conversations. I, I love Sunday morning conversations because 
we go from like just greeting one another. How's your week? Did you see that game? Boom, we're like automatically sports. How's work going? What's going on there? Hey, you mentioned the possibility of a promotion. What's going on with that? Have you heard anything? Like, oh goodness. We talk about medical stuff. We talk about theology. We debate politics and solve all the world's problems. We do all that sort of stuff because we have what are called holistic conversations. Conversations that touch on every part of life that are holistic. Those are just a few congregational liturgies that have kind of a disruptive work in our lives and help form us and shape us. Another, uh, another category of liturgies that I want to think about this morning, communal liturgies. Now, this is kind of zooming out of the gathered uh, body of Christ, and it's, it's more community, society, neighborhood-oriented type of things. Um, there, and, and not all of us do this sort of thing. We're, um, I've just got a couple of suggestions that I would make that would be communal liturgies that might have a disruptive work in your life as well as in the life of people that you live near and kind of do life with. Shared meals together. When's the last time you invited a neighbor, like a physical neighbor over? When's the last time you invited the person from, you know, up and around the corner over for a meal? Or, hey, why don't you guys join us? We're going to Moe's tonight. Again, communal liturgies. Block parties. Anybody live in a neighborhood that's had a block party recently? Nope, not a one of us. They're actually pretty common uh, in some communities, uh, particularly out west where you know, a lot of hipsters live and whatnot. I bet they have block parties when you get inside the perimeter as well. Um, you know, the hip folks do that sort of stuff. But block parties, they, they kind of have a disruptive way about them. Like, hey, we're grilling a bunch of stuff. We're going to have, you know, some tables out on the front lawn. And, you know, everybody in the neighborhood will kind of come and maybe maybe have multiple grills going, that sort of thing. And just like, hey, we've got some, maybe a game on, a, on some laptops, that sort of thing. And we're just kind of doing this sort of thing together. It, it's, it, it is disruptive because it's something that doesn't happen all the time. And it could have a, a formative effect on us and allow us also to have a formative effect on others. Third category of liturgies that I want us to think about together this morning. Friendship liturgies. I didn't know what else to call it. But liturgies that you have and do with closer friends. Friends that you're, that you're doing life with on a more regular basis. Get-togethers for lunch or coffee. Like, hey, we haven't spent a lot of time together lately. Let's, let's get together for coffee in the next couple of weeks. Let's grab lunch together. And in the context of that, meaningful conversations. Not just, how's work going? Not just, you know, wife, kids doing all right? Yeah, good, good, okay, cool. Hey, uh, how, how's your cousin doing? But, but actually meaningful conversations, getting beyond that. Those things are meaningful, but normally those are kind of on the periphery of life. But, um, but, but you know, hey, you, you seem to be kind of down lately. Is everything going all right there? What's going on? Uh, how's, you know, how's, how's your heart been? Um, as 
a friend opens up about maybe job stresses or things like that, being willing to kind of let the conversation linger around that discomfort that we might have. Most meaningful conversations are pretty uncomfortable to have. And we live in a world where we don't really like discomfort. We want all of life to be comfortable. I do too. When I have a headache, I want to take something. I want to get the headache out of my life, out of my experience. I don't want it anymore. I do not like being uncomfortable. But in all of life, we normally avoid discomfort, no matter the cost. Prayer together is another friendship liturgy. Um, this was not in the context of a friendship, but had somebody sharing with me recently, uh, not anybody in this room or in this congregation, um, uh, but somebody was sharing with me recently about how, uh, about how they, they felt like they don't know how to pray anymore. And yes, I'm using a plural pronoun to describe a single person. I'm breaking all the rules of grammar because I don't want to uh, uh, say whether this is a guy or a gal, but... Uh, this person shared with me that this person was having a really hard time praying. I don't even know how to pray anymore is what was said. And I said, well, hey, I hear you. And number one, you can start by praying that, Lord, I don't know what to say. And I find this so uncomfortable. I don't know what to tell you. Um, but also, how about asking this person? I mentioned somebody else by name that I knew was extremely close to this person i said what about just saying hey let me be vulnerable for a moment i i need prayer and i don't know how to pray right now will you please pray with me and over me yes it'll be weird it'll be awkward it'll be uncomfortable especially if it's something you're not used to doing but sometimes it's in the discomfort where healing is and where true deep meaning can be found. So those are just a few friendship liturgies to think about. Personal liturgies. Of course, there's the means of grace. Bible reading, prayer, gathered worship, all those ministry to others, all those sorts of ways in which God gets his grace into our lives, both public means of grace and private means of grace. Public prayer, praying together as the body, praying with friends, but then also private, personal prayer. Um, public scripture reading, private scripture reading. All of those different means of grace are personal liturgies that have a disruptive work in our lives. Sabbath stops. Sabbath is saying stop to certain things. Stop to work. Stop to technology. Stop to sports. Stop to things that we need a breather from. Pers another personal liturgy that um, has a kind of a disruptive effect on our lives that we're not used to doing, and this is going to sound very, count hopefully, counterintuitive. I think it's counterintuitive for me, is single-tasking. You've probably never even heard that word. I think I might have made it up. I might have coined a phrase there, but single-tasking. You've heard of multitasking, and the unfortunate thing is that in a world such as ours today, we're used to going every single day multitasking. Now, you're probably thinking, no, I don't. I guarantee you, you do multiple times throughout your day. 
you wash dishes while listening to a podcast. I do it all the time because I feel like I'm wasting time washing dishes otherwise. And so I'm trying to do something. I'm trying to be productive. Let me learn something. Let me hear something. Let me hear a voice other than my own sharing, uh, sharing with me some information. We listen to music while we do menial tasks like that. We listen to music while we mow the lawn. We, we, we might even have music on while we're watching a game and we've got the sound muted on the TV because we don't want to listen to those announcers, but we're listening to something else. You're multitasking. You know, you're on the phone while driving. Multitasking. You're on the phone while you're trying to submit that TPS report that the boss keeps sending you the memo about and it's just getting annoying, right? You're multitasking. We multitask all the time. We sit and have a meal while we're doing something else. Hopefully it's not looking at our phones. But practicing single tasking can be quite disruptive in our lives. Being fully present, fully engaged in the moment, attending to the moment. We live in a dearth of focus. We live with a, with a dearth of focus. But what if we just put everything else away and just attended to this person or this activity for the moment? It can, it can have a kind of a, a reordering effect in our lives. Another personal liturgy is regular, tangible interactions with creation. taking walks rather than just looking at photos. Going and seeing real, live trees rather than majestic, beautiful trees on a screen. Going out and walking a path rather than looking at this, oh, this is the most amazing waterfall. It's in this little tucked away village of Brazil. But walks over photos, analog art over digital pics. I can't tell you the last time I went to an art museum. But, you know, we'll look at Facebook and flip through like a, a slide that a friend shared that's got 37 images that are majestic and wonderful and beautiful and digitally doctored maybe, but... But when's the last time we held a piece of paper that was drawn on and thought, man, it's actually really impressive. That's good work. We'll look at all the things that the telescopes show us on our screens. And rarely do we go outside and look up at that same exact sky and think, wow. Um, I'm not going to mention it by name since we're um, recording the sermon and uploading it to our podcast, but we're at one of our monthly ministries this week and we're sitting around with some, some youth and uh, we were doing some just some get-to-know-you questions and Jan put together a lot of activities for us to do, and they, they are really helpful in kind of breaking ice and getting to know you, that sort of thing. And we were doing 
one, uh, one activity called this or that, and I'm doing it, and so I'm like reading off, and I was doing it like, I think I did a really good job. Uh, and doing it, but I, I enjoyed it. It was fun, and the kids were like really engaged. But this or that, and one thing was so. Uh, the question I asked was uh, books or tablets, and immediately the kids knew what it, we were, what I was asking. Do you want to hold a, a physical copy of a real book with real paper pages that you're turning, or would you just rather read the same story or the same? document from a tablet where you can just keep, you know, seamlessly kind of scrolling. And there was only one youth who said tablet. Interesting. I was completely shocked by that. I did not expect that at all. But only one, um, only one said, I'd rather have a tablet. To a person, everyone else said, I want the book. I want a book. Lastly, some family liturgies. What are some familial liturgies that can have a disruptive work in our lives? Saying blessings. It's important. It's interesting that we call it saying grace. You know, and if somebody says, would you like to say grace? You know, that person does not pray hardly ever in public, I bet. Just because how weird and stiff it sounds. Um, they're probably really uncomfortable asking. Um, but uh, would you like to say grace? Saying grace together. Offering up a thanksgiving. Praying a blessing over a meal. Those are important liturgies that have a way of of disrupting our world, disrupting the moment, because think about like getting together at a table. It's, it is a very imminent activity. Where does this food come from? The store. Okay, but what about before that? You know, what are we doing? We're just consuming it and we'll digest it and we'll talk and visit and that sort of stuff. But a prayer of blessing causes us to stop and recognize that this did not get here by accident. This and this that we are doing is a blessing from God. He has provided it for us and we thank Him. Even in public, which can be weird because you don't want to be the guy who's like, all right, listen up, we're going to say a blessing. And everybody else that's not with your crowd is like, well, that's, that's strange. You don't have to be rude and obnoxious about it. You should be. Um, but, uh, but the willingness to say, hey, we're going to say a blessing and stopping, you don't do that to try to evangelize people, but it can have a disruptive witness on others, even unsuspectingly. Lighting candles as a family, especially to mark seasons, Advent candles in the home. Or the changing of seasons. Hey, we're going to get some pumpkin-smelling candles and lighting them and maybe even reading scripture around that sort of thing, that sort of activity. Sabbath stops, again, as families. Where we put certain things away, where we put certain activities away, where we take breathers. Sacred schedules as families things that are non-negotiable for us rather than penciling them on 
our calendar. We have pinned them on our calendar. We have written them in Sharpie and maybe highlighted them. This is what we do on Sunday mornings. This is what we do when Advent comes here. This is what we do for these sacred times on these sacred days. And devotional readings as a family, scripture reading, meaningful conversations as families, prayer together. So these sorts of practices in all different parts of our lives and different relationships that we have in life, you know, your relationship with your next door neighbor is not the same relationship you have with somebody at church. The relationship you have with each of those is not the same relationship that you have with your kids or your cousin or, 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 you know, all those different relationships. These sort of practices prepare good soil, which is a must if we're going to plant well and bear much fruit. They are putting into practice the principles of our passage this morning and these past few weeks. They are ways in which we pray steadfastly, as Paul says. They will make us more grateful, enabling us to watch over our lives with thanksgiving. They will open doors in our lives and in our relations for the word of Christ to do its good work. They will create opportunities for us to declare the mystery of Christ in a way that's receivable by others who also live in our postmodern, secular age that is so regularly distracted. They are practical examples of how we might walk in wisdom toward outsiders, investing time well. They are sure methods which the salt of the, word, of the word will securely get into the soil of our lives, enabling us to, great, to be gracious in how we react to and interact with others. And thereby they enable us to become desperately needed disruptive witnesses in our dark and desperate world. And so on that note, let's end with that phrase, making the best use of the time. That phrase that Paul uses here in our passage. I find the authorized version or the, the King James version, or as I affectionately refer to it, the King Jimmy uh, I, I find it far more disruptive and therefore far more helpful. Redeeming the time. Think about that for a moment. Redeeming the time. Let's be disruptive witnesses in a distracted world. Let's be a redemptive presence within and for this broken time in which we find ourselves. We can lament the days and we can curse the darkness. We can scream and shout about the desperate condition of the soil all around us, or, or we can pray steadfastly, speak graciously, rid our own lives and our own families of the weeds and stones of bad soil. And we can take some trusted tools and start trustworthily tilling up the ground all around us. Remember, the Lord of the harvest 
tells us to lift up our eyes and see. And he invites us to humbly join him in the disruptive work of redemption. Thinking about our distracted, postmodern, secular age, we might be reminded of that scene from the Fellowship of the Ring, wherein lamenting the unfortunate days in which he was tasked with bearing an unbearable burden, the hobbit Frodo moaned, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And to this, to his understandable but misdirected frustration, the wizard Gandalf gently replied, So do I, and so do all who live to see such times. But it is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And so may the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit give us the wisdom of wizards and the will and ways of hobbits to do the good work of being a disruptive witness in our desperate world. Father, we thank you for how much you love us. We thank you for disrupting our own lives in various ways and various times from the distractions that are all around us, the distractions that we so often impose upon ourselves, that we bring into our lives and then we refuse to, to um, control within our lives. Lord, we thank you that you do disrupt us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to put into practice some of those behaviors that can disrupt our lives even more and perhaps even disrupt the lives of others in a way that is kingdom-oriented and in a way that is preparing the soil for the seed of the gospel. We love you. We thank you for each other. We thank you for this time together. We pray that you would help us, to, each of us to take honest assessment of our own lives to change what needs to be changed by the power and the work of your Holy Spirit as he gives us grace to do so. We pray in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.